Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 1st, 2019. I'm Brian Cardow. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering major appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. This week we're doing things just a bit differently than usual, whereas typically, as you may be familiar, we wrap an entire episode around one case or issue. There was so much going on this week in California-related appellate and constitutional law news that we decided to instead do something of a roundup of a handful of items we found especially interesting. So in a few moments, we'll hear from a collection of excellent guests on a few of the week's biggest rulings and issues. We'll be talking about the U.S. Supreme Court exercising its final opportunity to, this time posthumously, overturn the Ninth Circuit's departed liberal stalwart Stephen Reinhardt, and by so doing, cast into some disarray legal questions pertaining to gender pay disparity. Also discussed a headline-grabbing Equal Protection Clause victory earned by a California attorney this week in a ruling that found the United States' all-male military draft to be unconstitutional. And finally, we'll chat about the latest Federal Arbitration Act-based challenge leveled by an employer defendant against California's very resilient Private Attorney General Act. On the Reinhardt reversal, I'll chat with the nationally renowned federal courts expert Arthur Hellman from Pittsburgh Law School, and then Dan Siegel of Siegel, Yee, Bruner, and Meta. He's the attorney who brought the Equal Pay Act claim at issue in the case on behalf of a public school math consultant in Fresno County. After that, Mark Angelucci, Vice President of the National Coalition for Men and the prevailing attorney in that military draft case, will join me. And finally, I'll chat with Glenn Danis. He's a partner with Robbins Kaplan and a veteran of the California Private Attorney General Act suits, including the seminal Iskanian case that firmly established the current doctrine. Before hearing from that accomplished cohort, though, I'll first chat with our very own Nick Sonnenberg. He covers the Ninth Circuit for the Daily Journal and will be here to tell us a bit about that circuit's newest member, Eric Miller, who was confirmed this week by the Senate on a party-line vote. Nick will hop on the line in just a second, but quickly I want to remind everyone that if you're looking for a few CLE credits to fill your requirement, you've found the place. Listeners who have tuned in into the podcast can easily receive one hour of California CLE credit for having tuned in. Just go to the dailyjournal.com site and find this podcast then find a link to a short true-false test. After taking the test, one hour of CLE credit can be yours in exchange for a very modest fee. That fee, of course, helps us continue to provide this podcast outside of our usual paywall. Okay, without any further preamble, then let me welcome in our Ninth Circuit Beat reporter, Nick Sonnenberg. Nick, thanks for hopping on the pod. Thanks for having me, Brian. Okay, so Eric Miller is President Trump's third successful appointment to the Ninth Circuit bench. Um, but as you write in our paper, it's something of a, his confirmation was something of a first. It was the first time in at least a good while that an appeals court judge was successfully placed on the bench without the approval of the judge's home state senators here. That would be the senators in the state of Washington. The, the, the approval of such senators always comes in the form of a blue slip. Remind me what exactly that those blue slips are, how the blue slip process has worked historically, how long the norm has gone back and sort of what's uh, been the the recent development in the process. Right. So uh, the blue slip tradition began in 1917. Um, It's exactly that, just a tradition. There's no written code um, formalizing this practice, but um, I guess the summary of, of the process is that when a federal judicial nominee comes to the Judiciary Committee, senators from the nominee's home state submit their approval or disapproval, concerns, thoughts on the nominee um, to the committee chairman in a blue piece of paper. And either negative blue slips or unreturned blue slips have in various forms sort of posed a a barrier to um, moving forward for those nominees. But the power that those blue slips hold is uh, at the discretion of whoever chairs the Judiciary Committee. And so there's sort of been different approaches. Some people have treated unreturned blue slips as an effective black ball on a nominee, while others have sort of taken their time, waited to see whether the uh, other senator returns their blue slip um, before moving forward. It's uh, worth noting that um, the last Democratic chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, had a very strong blue slip policy. And um, if he was lacking even just one blue slip from a federal judicial nominee, that was enough to blackball even uh, President Obama's uh, picks for federal court opens uh, openings. So here, of course, both 
blue slips are lacking from Washington Senators Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell. Do you know to what extent the the decision by the senators to withhold the blue slips had to do more with sort of procedural issues, not being in on the decision of whom to nominate, not being part of the consultation, or were they more worried about the sort of substantive policy preferences of the, the nominee himself, Eric Miller? Do you, do you have a sense of, of which sort of prevailed in terms of what they're most worried about? Well, that's an interesting question because I guess their objections have changed um, over the course of the last few months when Mr. Miller was, or now Judge Miller, uh, was nominated to the court last year. Their initial objection was merely procedural. They did not comment on his qualifications, his ideology, anything along that. They cried foul and said that they were not properly consulted. And that claim sort of got muddied in a letter that Chairman Grassley, then Chairman Grassley released, detailing conversations, uh, emails, calls made, interactions between the White House Counsel's Office and uh, the Senators um, over a period of time, actually a year before Miller was nominated. At one point, uh, Grassley claimed that Murray had actually consented to the Miller nomination in exchange for the nomination of two district court nominees, Kathleen O'Sullivan and Tess Gorman, for the district court in Seattle. Those were both uh, individuals Obama considered nominating before he left office. In fact, O'Sullivan was actually unsuccessfully nominated before Obama left. Murray later objected to that characterization of a, a package deal. But as time progressed and information about, I guess, Miller's record and his private practice career that seemed to be at odds with Native American tribes came to light. The two senators then added those objections to their concerns about his confirmation to the seat. One more thing about just the confirmation procedure. You said this norm is fairly longstanding, but of course the the thing about norms is there can be broken easily enough, as we found out. Was the the contravention of of this norm noted with um, you know any particular concern or uh, objection by uh, the Democrats that were in the, the chamber? Oh, certainly. I mean, what's interesting is that this debate was foreshadowed with a prior Ninth Circuit nominee, Ryan Bounds, who was tapped by the White House to fill an Oregon seat on the court. A very similar process unfolded whereby the Oregon senators refused to return blue slips, saying they weren't properly consulted. Some controversial writings that Mr. Bounds wrote in college surfaced, and then the Oregon senators turned their objections to those writings, and those documents that surfaced ultimately caused a few Republicans to defect and say they would not vote to confirm the nominee. A similar debate unfolded here. I believe eight Democrats took the Senate floor the day the body voted on Miller's confirmation to object to this, calling it a travesty and a, a dangerous precedent, um, and and noted that at some point the issue will be on the other foot and Democrats will hold the White House and the Senate and Republicans will have very little power to stop them from pushing through their nominees. Okay, turning to to Judge Miller then, blue slips or not, he will now take the seat vacated by Judge Tallman, who I believe moves to senior status. You know, tell me a bit about who, who he is. He seems like he comes largely out of central casting for an appellate jurist, Harvard undergrad, Chicago Law School, Supreme Court clerk, uh, Department of Justice background appellate experience. What do we know about him that uh, might distinguish him from um, you know, the run-of-the-mill attorney? And uh, what, um, or I guess, what do we know about him that is of, is of note? That's right. He is, uh, I guess, central casting is the best way to put it. Um, uh, Senator Dick Durbin actually sort of joked there's a, a checkbox that the uh, White House counsel goes through and, and looks to see whether you're a Thomas clerk and a member of the Federal Society. And if you are, then that's enough for any uh, any federal judicial nomination. Mr. Miller has had a pretty low-key career. He's worked at uh, the uh, Seattle office of Perkins Coie, heading its appellate practice group for the majority of his time uh, post-clerking. And he's built a career, I guess, um, that that 
critics say is at odds with uh, Native American right. He's represented, represented, excuse me, a number of uh, private companies um, in high-profile disputes over tribal sovereignty, tribal immunity, and those sorts of issues, winning some pretty significant cases in the federal courts of appeals. Just, uh, I believe it was last year, he got the federal circuit to uh, sort of curb tribal immunity protections in the patent sphere, saying that it tribal immunity uh, didn't uh, preempt patent review. He also won a uh, unanimous decision from the Supreme Court in 2017 that had to, that addressed uh, tribal sovereign immunity when a, an Indian employee is involved in an accident uh, off Indian property, and so that's that's been a, uh, a cause for concern for Native American groups. The National Congress of American Indians has actually opposed Mr. Miller's nomination and lobbied um, extensively uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee um, to see that he didn't proceed. And it's uh, it's important. I, I guess this issue is important because of the court uh, Mr. Miller now sits on. The uh, Ninth Circuit is home to nearly three-quarters of the nation's 573 federally recognized tribes. Um, and here's um, the most federal appeals that involve questions of Indian law and tribal immunity. And so a number of Native American tribes have, have expressed concern that, you know, this man will now be sitting on the court that decides so much law that cuts close to home to them. One other interesting thing about Miller's confirmation process was in his committee hearing. It occurred during a Senate recess, and so he didn't field a whole lot of questions, um, and I think almost no adversarial questions uh, on this particular issue, his stance on issues like Native American sovereignty and, and, and tribal rights. Before, his party did say, you know, I, I am in an appellate practice at a, a law firm that handles these sorts of cases, and so I have clients that have interests and I represent them zealously. I might not necessarily possess those views personally. Uh, it seems like a you know, a fairly understandable answer on that issue, I suppose. You know, how much do you think you can read in to his, you know, personal ideology when it comes to this sort of uh, this uh, area of the law? That's right. He um, did appear for his Judiciary Committee hearing when uh, when the when Congress was in recess. Only two senators were present, uh, Mike Crapo of Idaho and Orrin Hatch, and Crapo was the only one to ask him questions about this. And, and as you pointed out, his defense was, look, uh, you know, I worked at this firm, and Perkins Coie is known, um, given its its location in Washington, um, as sort of a leading firm for companies dealing with these issues. And Miller has said, I don't, I don't personally harbor strong feelings about this. I have no problem following existing case law, as any good judicial nominee says. And so I guess it's, it remains to be seen whether that will uh, bear out or, or whether he really does have strong feelings about tribal sovereign immunity. As you say, we'll, we'll now get a chance to, to find out as he takes his seat up there in Washington. But for now, we'll leave it there. Uh, Nick Sonnenberg, a Ninth Circuit Beat reporter, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. Turning now from the Ninth Circuit's newest member to one of its longest tenured, Judge Stephen Reinhardt passed away 11 months ago, but not before authoring the majority opinion in a consequential employment discrimination case, Yovino v. Rizzo, which considered the question of whether, under the Federal Equal Pay Act, an employer can justify a pay disparity between men and women performing the same work based on the employee's prior salary from past jobs. Reinhardt emphatically said no, In an en banc majority ruling, he wrote that, quote, the financial exploitation of working women embodied by the gender pay gap continues to be an embarrassing reality of our economy, end quote. He said allowing current pay disparity based even in part on past pay inequity effectively sanctions continuing gender bias just based on a superficially gender neutral reason. The defendant in that case, Fresno County, admitted to paying plaintiff Eileen Rizzo a public school math consultant, less for comparable work than her male colleagues. But in its defense, the county said it was only doing so because Rizzo came 
to the job having earned lower salaries in prior work, in Reinhardt's view, that was no defense. And that was also the view of five other Ninth Circuit judges that joined the en banc majority. Five more judges concurred, though they disagreed with Reinhardt that prior pay could never be considered. But perhaps more so than because of its interesting legal and policy dynamics, the opinion drew news attention because of its timing. It issued 11 days after Judge Reinhardt had died, with the footnote clarifying that, though Reinhardt had passed on before the court got around to issuing the ruling, he had fully considered the matter, voted and written that majority opinion. But Fresno County was quick to point out that had the deceased judge's vote not counted when the opinion rendered, the broad reading of the Equal Pay Act's protections would not have become new law, but rather, and much differently, a suggested interpretation endorsed by only a plurality. Fresno asked the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and disqualify Reinhardt's vote, and on Monday, they did, with an unsigned procurium opinion free of dissent. In an opinion some viewed as a bit unfeeling, the court wrote that judges are appointed for life, not for eternity. Joining us now to unspool the legal and policy questions pertaining to posthumous judging is our good friend Arthur Hellman, a nationally recognized federal courts scholar and professor emeritus at Pitt Law School. Professor, welcome to the show. Brian, it's a pleasure to be with you again. So we spoke last year around the time Judge Reinhardt's posthumous en banc opinion came out, and I recall at the time you were skeptical that the Ninth Circuit had really taken the right approach there by releasing that opinion 11 days after Judge Reinhardt had passed away. Um, what were your concerns about that that approach that the, the circuit took about releasing the opinion um, posthumously? Well, I suppose there were two concerns, one kind of technical and one larger, grounded in the way federal judges carry out their business. The technical was just based on a, a reading of these statutes and also a Supreme Court decision um, that, in fact, was cited in the Supreme Court decision this week, which suggested that uh, once a judge left the court, whether by death, resignation, or anything else, retirement, that judge was no longer eligible to participate and that you had to look at the composition of the panel as of the date the opinion was filed. But the larger concern I had was about the way federal judges work. And I think the assumption has to be that until the moment the opinion is filed and becomes public, the judge can change his or her mind. And I think that is so important because people tend to think that judges come to cases with predilections and presuppositions, and of course they do. Uh, every judge, no judge is a blank slate, <clears throat> but they're also willing to listen to argument and consider new aspects of the case, maybe even driving home from the court or driving to work one morning. The judge suddenly thinks about a an aspect of the case. Uh, he or she has signed off on it. And yet there's something um, to look at again. And I think that open mind is an essential element of the judicial temperament. So the Supreme Court was considering this case and this issue and then went ahead and, and issued this per curiam ruling this week without you know, hearing argument and getting a full briefing. So we don't exactly know the main arguments that would have been advanced by those championing the idea that, that the opinion should should stay on the books, but I, I, I gather, you know, the the main thrust of, of any such argument would be that, as the Ninth Circuit put it, and when it issued the opinion, you know, Judge Reinhardt had voted and had had written this opinion. I think you know, everyone would sort of stipulate the Ninth Circuit is not trying to fool anyone here. Everyone assumes that this was Judge Reinhardt's opinion and his his vote. It's probably also fairly unlikely he would have changed it, but I guess that doesn't really fully counteract the the worry that you cite that. We just have to operate in a world where judges do at least possess, even if they're not going to use it, the, the ability to change their mind until the issue comes out. You know, is that the main argument you see on the other side? And, and how yeah, does that interact yeah, with the and, Sure. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the possibility of a change of mind is not only Judge Reinhardt, but the other judges. They interact with one another. And you know, maybe another judge comes up with some idea, sends it to the other uh, members of the panel, and that could, in theory, happen um, in that short period between Judge Reinhardt's death and the issuance of the opinion. So then it seems like that concern is also the, the main basis for the Supreme Court's ruling here, that procedural point that you just have to 
have to give the judges the chance to potentially change their mind and then everyone in the written decision and in the voted on decision is alive and active when it comes out, right? Well, that that's the policy argument, but I think the court primarily rests on both the, the statutes that govern participation in cases and this older case, uh, let me find it here, on uh, NBank uh, process. And the court said in that case, referring to the statutory language, a case or controversy is determined when it is decided. And the actual decision does not come until it is filed. So it's for the, for the Supreme Court, it's both a matter of policy and of uh, statutory language as construed in a prior decision. Okay, and uh, a question sort of outside the, the policy and, and the legal question. And just in terms of the, the court's tone, I noted some court watchers remarked after the opinion came down that it seemed a, a little bit stern or almost scolding, especially sort of given the context. You know, we're talking about a, a judge that has passed away has obviously no opportunity to respond. Did you read in between the lines at all any just sort of re- residue from the many uh, reversals that the Supreme Court had already issued in, in, in Judge Reinhardt's opinions and, and some indication that the Supreme Court is not unfamiliar with that, you know, quote attributed to Judge Reinhardt that the Supreme Court can't reverse them all, so why not try to get a couple can't past catch them? them all, yes. No, I have to say I did not see that. I, I have to say on, on the contrary, I thought the court was very careful to be respectful of the Ninth Circuit and its institutions, even by saying in the uh, second paragraph, the Honorable Stephen Reinhardt. Now, I suppose some people would see that as a kind of, you know, backhanded or or ironic, but I don't think so. I, I don't think the court had to do that here. The one thing that might support that view is the footnote referring to another case where the court initially allowed Judge Reinhardt's participation to stand and then withdrew the opinion and had another judge assigned to the case. So you could read that as saying, goodness, they knew the right thing to do in that case, which is a technical tax case. They knew the right thing to do there. Why didn't they do the same thing in this much higher profile employment discrimination case? So it's it's not without substance that, that people would read it that way, but you're parsing some language pretty carefully to get to that, I think. One other thing that may be overly parsing is an unsigned opinion joined by eight of the justices, but Sandra Sotomayor concurred separately. She didn't write anything. Do you have any sense of why she might have you know, not joined on to the main ruling here? Is it not really anything that's worth um, thinking too terribly much about? Well, it's one of those things that that's puzzling today. I mean, if you go back decades, it was very common for judges and justices to concur in a judgment without writing anything. Today, it's very, very unusual that a justice, particularly a justice of the Supreme Court, does that. And I have to say, I have no clue as to what in the opinion uh, she found unsatisfactory or why it couldn't have been ironed out so that you would not have this little oddity of a of a justice concurring in the result, but disagreeing with something, something which we don't know anything about in the opinion. Okay, just one last one. Do you have a good sense of what happens next? Is the ball sort of in the Ninth Circuit Court to figure out what it wants to do to determine this case? And do you have a sense of what the Ninth Circuit might do? Well, that's a very good question. I assume that the case now goes back to this limited N-Bank panel and that the panel would request or the clerk of court would just go ahead and select a judge at random to sit as part of a reconstituted 11-judge N-Bank panel. And then at that point, the reconstituted panel would have to decide how it wants to proceed. And I suppose a lot would depend on what the newly assigned judge would like. I mean, it's conceivable that the new judge would say, you know, I don't know anything about this case. I'd like to start afresh. 
um, more likely the newly assigned judge would read the briefs, listen to the oral argument, and then participate based on that. Well, we'll certainly stay tuned to, to see what happens, but we'll leave it there for now. As always, pleasure to be joined by Professor Arthur Hellman from Pittsburgh Law School. Thanks very much, Professor, for being on the show. Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Dan Siegel is the attorney who represented Eileen Rizzo before the Ninth Circuit and who now may need to do so one more time. He's on the line now to share his thoughts on the High Court's decision and also say a few words about the employment law question at the heart of this case. Dan, thanks for being on our show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Okay, so you've obviously been working on this case for a good while now. Uh, eventually, after a good bit of procedure prevailed at the Ninth Circuit, the en banc, stage. First, what are your initial thoughts with the Supreme Court's ruling striking down his his opinion just based on the idea that it was published 11 days after he had, had passed away? Well, it was a very uh, surprising result in the Supreme Court. We had not really uh, considered that uh, the court would like rule the way it did. We opposed uh, the grant of certiorari and had hoped that the court would simply allow Judge Reinhardt's uh, decision to stand. Of course, we were prepared for a grant and having to uh, argue the issue in the Supreme Court, but it seems at least uh, reasonable to believe that the court uh, could not develop a consensus on what to do about the case and therefore moved from the main issue to this uh, very esoteric question regarding whether a decision that had been written or even joined in by a judge who fully participated in making the decision but then died before it was actually issued by the clerk uh, whether that decision could stand and of course the supreme court has now ruled for the first time that such a decision cannot stand so so we set a precedent that we didn't expect was even in the cards i mean that it had to be a pretty unique situation for that really even to be an issue on which this case could could be disposed of and gotten off the Supreme Court docket. You know, of course, if, if Judge Reinhardt had uh, convinced one other judge to join in on his majority and say this is more like a seven to four type ruling on, on the, the question of how broadly to construe the act, yeah, then the court can't say, okay, well, we can't count his vote, so we're, we're kicking it back down because that would not change the, the outcome. It really turned on just the fact that he was the one vote that that cemented this the new precedent, right? Yes, and that's true. And given the circumstances, of course, all eleven judges in the Ambang Court uh, agreed with the outcome of right. Judge Reinhardt's decision, but the concurrences only differed, in my opinion, uh, quite slightly with his strong statement regarding the use of prior pay to justify a pay differential. They all agreed, for example, that Fresno's policy, which based a current salary solely on prior pay, was unlawful under the Equal Pay Act. And the issue that uh, divided them was simply whether there were any conceivable circumstances where prior pay could be considered. Right. And and so Judge Reinhardt and five judges said no, never, and, and five other judges said, well, sometimes under certain circumstances, roughly speaking, right? Yeah, that, uh, roughly speaking is right, because uh, Judge Reinhardt did concede that there might be some narrow circumstances where it could be considered. And for example, if someone came in and said, look, I, I need a pay increase in order to move from my current employer to a new employer, and the new employer said, well, okay, in, in light of your previous uh, salary, we will give you a pay increase to come over. I think under mm -hmm. Judge Reinhardt's decision, that would be allowable. You know, of course, his interpretation of the law is, I imagine, the the, the one that you argued for. What is, you know, and, and that turns on the the conclusion that the, the factor uh, a person's prior salary is not a factor other than sex, to use the statutory language. You know, what's the argument that that 
you know, previous salary that just it's just a, a number is not a factor different and, and discrete and, and separate from sex? Well, you know, actually, we think the issue is a uh, pretty simple one. The Equal Pay Act was created, as the Supreme Court has previously acknowledged, in order to eliminate the historical disparity in compensation uh, given to men and women for equal, equal jobs. And that's established law. So to argue, as we did in this case, that the use of prior compensation to set Ms. Rizzo's salary uh, simply had the effect and only the effect of perpetuating this historical disparity. And that's why we believed very strongly that Fresno's policy was, was incorrect. And again, all 11 judges in the en banc panel agreed with that conclusion. I mean, one last one. Can, can you help me figure out here what what exactly happens next? You know, so if the vote of Stephen Reinhardt cannot be counted, is uh, a new on Bach panel called? Is there are there new arguments? Is it kicked back to a fresh new three judge panel? Do you have some sense of where this case will will go next? You know, it's not entirely clear. I think there are three possibilities, and I think the idea of starting all over again with a new on Bach panel is probably the least likely. But again, I don't know. I think the two most likely outcomes are, uh, number one, a new judge will be appointed to the existing panel to reconstitute it with 11 judges, and that group will reconsider the previous opinions uh, and decide what to do. And of course, one possibility is a new judge could simply uh, sign on to Judge Reinhardt's opinion, and it would be exactly as it was. Um, That's one possibility. Another possibility is that the court could decide to uh, simply leave things as they are with uh, no majority opinion, but the plurality, now five-judge opinion, and the two concurrences. And of course, that will lead to some uh, lack of clarity in other cases as they develop, because uh, lawyers and uh, district court judges will have to figure out what what the holding of the case actually is based on all all of the opinions and uh, infer the least controversial conclusion from from the opinions and uh, the result of that would place the Ninth Circuit pretty much in the mainstream of the other courts that have ruled on these issues and said that prior pay cannot constitute the sole basis for a compensation decision, but in some circumstances uh, where the employer can justify it, then uh, it could be part of the calculation of uh, creating a new pay rate for a new employee. I mean, that's a kind of uh, would leave the law in a somewhat confused uh, place. I've always thought the analogy could be uh, if we say that employers cannot discriminate on the basis of race, does that mean they can discriminate a little bit on the basis of race? And of course, the answer is no. And if prior pay really is simply a a pretext for the historical discrimination based on gender that has existed for a long time, then Judge Reinhardt is completely correct. You cannot consider it even a little bit. Okay, well now it sounds like the Ninth Circuit will, will reconsider the matter, and, and I'll, I'll let you get back to, to work on, on that. Um, but for now, uh, Dan Siegel from Siegel, Yee, Bruner, and Meta. Thanks very much for taking some time for us. I appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. In 1981, the Supreme Court held that a military draft only pressing men into service was constitutional. This week, in a case brought by California attorney Mark Angelucci, the Southern District of Texas held the opposite, finding that the selective service system's compelled enrollment of men and not women violates the Equal Protection Clause. Since that 1981 ruling, much has changed as to the roles women can fill in the U.S. military, and Angelucci and the Southern District of Texas say that those changes render the rationale in the old case largely inapplicable today. Angelucci is a sole practitioner in Crestline and also the vice president of the National Coalition for Men, a men's advocacy group in San Diego. 
He's on the line now to speak about his case, Mr. Angelucci. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. So your case has gotten quite a bit of national attention over the past few days. Let's start at the beginning of it. What is the the motivation behind bringing a suit like this? I, it, it, after the ruling came down, it uh, sparked some folks to recall the kinds of suits brought a generation ago by um, Ruth Ginsburg that are, were sort of indirect um, stratagems to advance women's equality, where she'd bring cases where men were seemingly disadvantaged by certain laws and get those overturned so that the laws would treat men and women equally. Uh, this sort of has a similar effect, the, the re- referencing the, the draft being exclusive to men. But that is, is not your strategy, right, to find some sort of oblique method of advancing women's rights. I mean, this case is brought on behalf of, of men that feel disadvantaged by the male-only draft, right? That's correct. That, well, it's, it's a matter of discrimination. And there may have been some valid basis in the Rosser versus Goldberg decision in 1981 to find that this didn't violate equal protection because women were not allowed in combat at that time. But that has changed. And now they are allowed in all combat roles. So there really is no more excuse to require only men to register. It, it definitely violates their equal protection rights. And we're very happy with the ruling. You referenced that case, the the Rosker versus Goldberg decision um, from 1981, in which a 6-3 court upheld an all-male draft. Um, that decision was largely anchored by uh, conservative justices keeping the, the draft all-male. Was the thrust of your argument before the Southern, Dis- Southern District of Texas that th- that decision had been based at least in, in large part on the fact that women then were not allowed into combat roles? And so now since that has changed, essentially... The U.S. Supreme Court decision there is not really controlling this question any longer? That's exactly right. That's precisely the main argument that we made. I mean, there are some other issues that come up. For example, does that draft have to be for combat roles? We know that during World War II, we almost drafted women as nurses, and that's on the Selective Service's own website. So there was also that issue as to whether roster was even right in the first place, and it was a sharply divided decision. Um, And not only that, but the lower courts in the roster decision sided with the men and found that it violated their equal protection rights. It was just at the Supreme Court that they reversed it with a vigorous dissent from Thurgood Marshall. So, uh, but yeah, primarily you're correct. Now that, that those circumstances have changed, men and women are similarly situated with regard to registration for the Selective Service, and there really is no more excuse to require them both. We don't take any position on whether there should be mandatory uh, Selective Service registration. That's really outside of our purview. But if there is going to be, then it needs to be for both and not just discriminating against males. I've seen some some legal scholars posit after this ruling that in addition to that that main rationale we've talked about now, the fact that women at that point weren't allowed into combat, um, the Rosker decision also references that there's good rationale for courts to be deferential to Congress in this area of law in terms of military issues and, and strategies and, and decisions based on you know, the effectiveness of the United States' ability, ability to defend itself. You know, that's sort of something courts maybe don't know a, a whole heck of a lot about, how, how a properly functioning military works. So maybe it, Congress is the best place for a change like this to come. You know, how much of the Rotsky ruling do you think is based on that premise? And, and how, I guess, uh, persuasive do you find that argument currently that a change like this really should come from, from Congress instead? Well, as to your first question, I think the Rotsky case was only secondarily based on that. It was primarily based on the fact that women were not allowed in combat. Secondarily, the court did mention that there does need to be some amount of deference to Congress. Uh, as far as specialization and military. But uh, as to your second question, well, I don't find that argument very strong now, mainly because, I mean, there, there definitely needs to be some amount of deference, but the courts still have a role of addressing the constitutional question. And when something is clearly unconstitutional, they need to, they need to declare it so. 
Uh, in this case, the court, the judge saw through those arguments that were being made by the Selective Service about deferring to Congress, um, because as we pointed out in our briefs, they haven't provided us anything to defer to. They didn't give us, for example, any argument from Congress that women should not be in, in combat roles or that they should only be in limited combat roles. They made no such argument at all, nor did they make any substantive argument about why women should not be required to register for the draft if men are. Maybe some subtle ones like, for example, they argued or they subtly argued that it might make women less likely to uh, enroll in the military at all out of fear. And the judge pointed out that, that there's no basis for that kind of an argument. They haven't provided any uh, any evidence of it at all. And it seems to be just based on stereotypes. So um, they, they did not give. The only argument they made for deference was that Congress is looking at this issue, that Congress has a committee that is evaluating this issue, as well as many other issues related to mandatory forms of service. And I do believe something will come out of that as well. Um, but they, but just saying that Congress is looking at it, in our opinion, isn't enough. And as the judge pointed out, Congress has been de- debating this issue for years and years and years, if not decades. So thankfully, the judge saw through that argument and realized there was really nothing that they gave the court to defer to and ruled in our favor. And we're very thankful for that. Could you talk to me for just a minute about the the fairly unique political dynamics that surround this case and this issue? You know, I think folks have become accustomed to, in, in the higher profile cases, it being fairly obvious how the, um, the political camps will sort uh, on either side of a given case. You talk about environmental cases, immigration cases, you know, abortion cases, you kind of know how they're going to break down on political lines. But this one seems to defy any simple breakdown of that nature. You know, as you said, in the 1981, the roster case, most of the liberals were in dissent, you know, advocating for a gender equal draft. Here we're in the Southern District of Texas. That's typically not a court where, you know, liberal causes are tend to go to be vindicated. Of course, you're going to meet a fairly conservative Fifth Circuit. I mean, how exactly would you explain why this case doesn't really lend itself to sort of a simple, simple political breakdown? Or if you disagree, feel free to tell me. No, I think you're right. It it, it really doesn't. It, maybe back in 1981, it it did, but I don't think it does so much today because it, it, it's more complex than that. And it, it really isn't about whether women should or shouldn't be in combat. It is about whether if there is mandatory requirements for draft registration and women are allowed in combat, both men and women should be required to register. And in, in our organization, the National Coalition for Men, we have both. We have people on both sides. We have Republicans, Democrats. We even have Greens and Libertarians. So we, we, we have all kinds, even though perhaps there is somewhat a centrist, maybe somewhat right-leaning overall, there are a wide variety of views among us, and we don't all agree on those issues. We, we certainly debate them somewhat internally, but we all agree that it, the discrimination is wrong. If women are going to be allowed in combat, then with equal rights comes equal responsibility. And we've seen varying views from the feminist side on that. Back in the 80s, the National Organization for Women sided with us on that um, and took action. Now, all, we've seen some statements from them, but we, we haven't seen any actual action on the part of feminist groups to make it so that the discrimination in draft registration ends. They focus on women in combat, but but sort of leave the issue of draft registration alone as far as we've seen. So it took men's rights groups to step up and, and do this. Yeah, I may be going a little bit off no, uh, away from your question about the left-right politics here, but it is complex. It is, it is. And the people, you know, the small number of people who have disagreed with us have usually either misunderstood us and thought that this was about women in combat, or we've had a few traditionalists who come at us and disagree and say, you know, my daughter shouldn't have to register, um, and that men have a certain role to be protectors. 
some people who argue, you know, of course, there are those who argue women shouldn't be allowed in combat, and we have to remind them this wasn't about that. If they're allowed in combat, then they should have the same obligations as men to register. And there have been, of course, some feminist groups who have argued that this was a very insignificant decision. And we've seen different people argue that, not just feminists, but others as well, say that this is insignificant because there's no draft. One person called it a, one feminist professor called it a publicity stunt, which I find really disingenuous because if women were the only ones required to register, even if there was no draft, I'm sure she wouldn't call it a publicity stunt if feminist groups sued to change it. You know, even if there's no draft, we have to look at the message this is sending about sex discrimination and equal rights and responsibilities. Um, In our opinion, this is really just a a part of male disposability. And we address lots of other issues, father's custody rights, paternity fraud, underfunding of prostate cancer, um, criminal sentencing disparity, many, many issues that we think stem from the, the concept of male disposability. And so that's something that's been left out of the gender narrative for for decades. And we think there needs to be a more balanced dialogue on gender. So this is just one of many areas where men do face systemic discrimination. Going back to the draft, even without a draft, men are not only required to register, but have to keep the government updated of their whereabouts for years after they do register. And in fact, not only is there a threat of penalties like jail, fines, um, or loss of federal jobs or grants, we, we know of men who've had it happen to them. It's not just a threat. Men have been jailed. Men have lost their federal jobs for not registering. One of them in particular we know of didn't register when he was draft age because he was homeless. And years later, he got a job with the federal government and Many years later, when he got older, they fired him when they learned he hadn't registered. Uh, so it's it's not now maybe only a, a handful of these men we don't know, but we know of some, and there may be many others we don't know of. So regardless, this is more than just a symbolic decision. It has real world impact. And I, I mean, I myself remember when I was of draft age and the Gulf War was starting, and I had nightmares about about being drafted. It's not that I wouldn't have gone, but I guess subconsciously I had fears of it. And so we, we don't take into account the psychological aspect of this whole thing as well, putting aside the draft itself. Yeah, sitting aside, and uh, just one last question for you, the, the real-world impact that you describe. In terms of legal impact, the, the ruling here is a declaratory judgment rather than an injunctive one sort of ordering the government to begin you know, requiring women to start filing in the selective service. I take it that's because that's the specific relief you sought. Why did you seek a, that sort of judgment? And, and what do you identify as the path forward in a, a case like this? Does that sort of set it up for a future case to then get that sort of order to, to have the selective service start enlisting women? How you know What's the likely path forward? And do you think that this kind of case is one that will wind its way up to the, the Supreme Court? I think there's a pretty good chance it will at least be appealed to the Court of Appeal, and then someone, one side or the other, will request Supreme Court review. And because of the topic, there's a pretty good chance it'll be accepted, but that it's still speculative at this point. We did ask for injunctive relief in our complaint, and in our motion for summary judgment, we asked, for a summary judgment in our favor on the causes of action in our complaint. So in our opinion, we did ask for injunctive relief. The judge decided that we hadn't or that it wasn't briefed in the motion. Personally, I think the real reason the judge did that is that he just wanted to give the government time to adjust to this because it's quite a drastic measure to add, to double the number of selective service registrants. I mean, it's there are quite a few changes that have to happen. And I think the judge wanted to give them some time and and maybe that was allowing some deference to Congress without calling it that. So now Congress is aware of this declaratory ruling and can adjust its policies accordingly. So we might file a motion to reopen the case and 
do a brief on injunctive relief or perhaps file a separate lawsuit for that. But whether we do or not, we're very happy with the decision because we know that unless this gets overturned on a re- on, on appeal, the government is going to have to change, whether it's tomorrow or in a year. Congress is going to have to adjust to it. And they've made some statements to that effect. So we, we're happy with the decision, even if, the, even if there was a misunderstanding about what we were requesting. Mark Angelucci from uh, the Vice President of the National Coalition for Men. Thanks very much for being on our podcast. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. And thank you, too. I appreciate it. In the evolving area of employment law these past few years, two things have remained fairly constant. The U.S. Supreme Court reverses lower courts that don't read the Federal Arbitration Act broadly enough and don't fully indicate the rights of dependents seeking to compel plaintiffs into that quasi-judicial forum. At the same time, California courts have been equally insistent that a state law, the Private Attorney General Act, generally shelters employee claims from FAA-based compelled arbitration motions, and specifically, the PAGA collective action rights cannot be contracted away in employment contracts. The landmark decision, Iskanian versus CLT Transportation, in which our next guest played a key role, held as much, but a SCOTUS ruling from last year, Epic Systems versus Lewis, resolved in favor of the FAA a conflict between that law and a federal labor statute that bears some resemblance to California's PAGA law that left some wondering whether Iskanian's rule still governed. On Monday, the 4th District Court of Appeal held that it does, and with more on that is Glenn Danis. He's partnered with Robbins Kaplan. He's not involved in this suit, but is our go-to for all things PAGA. Glenn, welcome back on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Once again, in, in this 4th District case, we see the intersection of the Federal Arbitration Act on the one hand and California's Private Attorney General's Act. The court is answering a question that was also presented in, in, in the case that you worked on, that case everyone knows about, the Iskanian case, essentially whether under the Federal Arbitration Act, of course, one pretty uh, statute pretty enthusiastically endorsed by the Supreme Court over the past uh, several years, uh, whether that law creates a situation where folks can waive the right to collectively bring a, an action under that California law, the, the Private Attorney General's Act. You know, is the the thing different in this case that wasn't the case in Iskanian that now the Supreme Court has dealt with that new case, the Epic versus Lewis case. And so the court here is dealing with this question in a somewhat new light. Is that why folks might have thought the outcome could be different here? Well, you know, every time that a U.S. Supreme Court decides a new arbitration-related case, especially where it's with respect to a, a state law issue, but not always, the defense bar enthusiastically brings uh, new claims saying that whatever the new case is shows that Iskanian was wrongly decided or that, you know, the, the PAGA case it issued needs to be uh, sent to arbitration under this new FAA uh, ruling. It was the same thing with the Imbergia case before it from uh, one or two terms prior, and it was the same before that. The uh, Epic Systems case is was not about PAGA or a statute like PAGA. It was about federal labor law and whether the Federal Arbitration Act required that federal labor law claims be sent to individual arbitration pursuant to a class action waiver and, and wasn't a preemption case. I mean, the, the Epic Systems decision is not about the scope of obstacle preemption or conflict preemption, which is what Concepcion was about and which is what the Iskanian ca- uh, court was deciding. So Epic Systems did, uh, in its recitation of the law, say that the FAA has broad preemptive effect, which is uh, as a general matter true, and the court has generally upheld it, then went on to decide whether or not the federal labor laws in the FAA were in conflict, and if so, which should essentially prevail. That's not the issue with Iskanian. Uh, Iskanian was an FAA preemption issue and specifically had to do with the FAA's preemptive effect on a state attorney's general cause of action that provides uh, really the, the state's method of enforcing its own labor laws through a deputized private litigant. So it's a very different issue, and I think the court here 
got it right by saying that you know Epic Systems really has has no bearing on this and and did so you know pretty pretty uh, succinctly. I mean, it's just a totally different issue. Can I ask you, you the, those two laws at issue in, in the Epic uh, versus Lewis case, one, of course, being the FAA um, and the other one being the Fair Labor Standards Act, sort of read as being in conflict and, and the FAA was determined to control the Fair Labor Standard Act. I mean, it's certainly different than pockets, obviously a federal statute, but in some ways it sounds sort of similar. It seems to guarantee that workers can in sort of the same way that workers in California do on behalf of the state can ensure that employers are following along with any federal guidelines like minimum wage laws and such and can bring those um, actions under the Fair Labor Standard Act sort of on behalf of themselves and others similarly situated. So, you know, it at least seems similar to PAGA and then there, of course, the FAA was dealt to, to control. Obviously, it's, you know, and it's in a case where there's PAGA at issue, those are two separate bodies of law. But, you know, is there much distinction between the uh, Fair Labor Standards Act and PAGA, uh, aside from the fact that they're just one's a federal, one's a state law? Well, I mean, there, I, I would say two things. One is Epic Systems was primarily about the National Labor Relations Act and the North LaGuardia Act being the federal labor laws and whether there's sort of a, an impingement on the federal right for concerted action under the federal labor laws by by enforcing a rule that prevents class actions or other types of collective litigation. So, so you know, I think it was mainly a case about that, but to the extent Epic Systems was about the FLSA, the FLSA, like Rule 23 or state class actions, is a rule that allows for individual claims for damages to be brought uh, collectively through a collective procedure in the FLSA through an opt-in class action practice under you know Rule 23, just under it allows it for bringing individual damages claims through a damages class action. The Private Attorney General Act (PACA) is completely different. PACA is not a method of bringing individual uh, damages claims. PACA is a method of aggregating civil penalties against a defendant for its wrongful conduct. The absent aggrieved employees in a PAGA action, as the Ninth Circuit recognized in Sakab, are not standing uh, to have their individual damages claims brought by a third party. Rather, they really act as simply a measure of civil penalties to be assessed against the defendant. There are no absent claims being brought, and it's a key distinction because this means that there are no uh, due process issues of the absent class members or the absent aggrieved employees. And more to the point, it means that there is that this is simply not a uh, an issue of uh, having, you know, absent people's uh, claims resolved, but rather it's a method of the state uh, collecting penalties on a particular basis. And the particular basis is really an aggregation of all of the violations committed against other people. So it's, it's, a, it's, you know, there, there's very little similar about the FLSA and PAGA. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, as you identified, certainly is, is seems to be the the crux here. That PAGA and, and the the remedies that are sought under it are are state penalties assessed, and much of the penalties that are assessed are then kept by the state. And twenty five percent, I believe, is is doled out among mm-hmm. the the private parties that are part of the suit or initially bring this suit. And so I take it, you know, the reasoning is that if PAGA were possible to waive, it would sort of be like the FAA forcing the state to like arbitrate its regulatory enforcement. Is that one way of of looking at it? Yeah, I think it is. And that brings us actually back to the Korea decision, because one of the, I think, key points in the Court of Appeals decision in Korea is that the case law on ETAM actions, says that essentially the, you know, because the state is the real owner of the claim, that the state must waive the right to litigate in order for the claim to end up in arbitration. And the same is true with PAGA. The state, being the real party in interest, has to consent to arbitration before the claim can be sent to arbitration. So I think that, that those are the, that's, a, that's an important parallel that this court drew. I mean, just one sort of follow-up on that. I, I suppose even if 
you know, a court were to say, okay, you can waive, employees can waive their right to collective action under PAGA, that wouldn't stop the state, of course, from um, taking a regulatory enforcement act if the, an employer violated some labor code. So I, I suppose there might be some room to argue that um, that interpretation isn't doesn't foreclose that option from the state just from the employers employees from initiating it first. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I very much would see that being a defense argument. I mean, I think the counter to that is that these, you know, California Supreme Court has several times explained that the entire purpose of PAGA, that, as explained by the legislature, is that it was enacted because the state lacks the resource to bring these suits itself. So turning it back on the state to say, well, you know, the enforcement mechanism that it's chosen is going to be snuffed out, but the state can always bring it itself, is really to say that the, the legislature's solution to its problem is, is going to be foreclosed by the courts by private arbitration. And that ends up really, as the Iskanian court and, and SACOP pointed out, you know, when states are acting in their role as enforcing their own or controlling their own um, police powers, which is, you know, one of one of which being to uh, to regulate their own labor markets, that needs to be deferred to uh, and by federal courts and by, you know, by Congress. And one of the reasons why there's no preemption is that the, the state has decided in our case in, uh, in PAGA the California legislature decided that the uh, that the state simply doesn't have the resources to make even a small dent in the uh, regulatory violations that employers commit. So, you know, the the PAGA is crucial. I think the Supreme Court mentioned in in the Iskanian decision that you know, one of the primary ways that the California legislature has decided to enforce its labor laws is through private enforcement under PAGA. So to say that, you know, that private enforcement could be shunted off to arbitration, uh, and especially as defend def- as defendants would have it to be arbitration that's individual, would be to undermine that entirely. Okay, maybe just one one last one. Yeah, of course, this is just a, a California appellate court ruling. But you know, do you think the issue here is one that will eventually work its way back up to the Supreme Court, whether the epic ruling disturbs uh, the force of Iskanian? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I think that the epic ruling uh, and it's, you know, whether it changes the preemption calculus is probably, I, to me at least, it seems like it's so straightforward that it probably wouldn't be one that uh, the California Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court would need to deal with, although, you know, one never knows. But I think the other, the other issue decided by Korea, whether PAGA is arbitrable at all, might be one, because there is, at least at this point, a brewing conflict between the federal courts and the state courts on that. You know, as the Korea court mentioned, you know, there, there, were, there have been a couple of cases in the Ninth Circuit, you know, Valdez and Wolf, although neither is published by the Ninth Circuit, where the Ninth Circuit has held that PAGA is arbitrable but made no distinction between whether it's a pre-dispute waiver or a post-dispute waiver. And the Korea court did, and I think very persuasively argued, you know, concluded that the, that, that distinction makes all the difference. Really, whether it's, if it's pre, pre-dispute, the employee has not yet uh, exhausted administrative remedy or administrative requirements and has not been deputized to speak on behalf of the state. If it's post-dispute, the employee has been uh, deputized to speak on behalf of the state. And, you know, at that point, I think it would be fair to say could waive to uh, litigate in court and could agree on the state's behalf as an agent to uh, to arbitrate the cause of action. But I could see that being a, a claim that uh, or an issue rather that that could get uh, kind of further high court uh, attention just because there seems to be a brewing conflict. Okay, as, as always, good to, to stay tuned with these issues. And we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Glenn Dan is partner with Robbins Kaplan. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks very much, Brian. That's our show for March 1st, 2019. Hope you enjoyed this comparably rapid-fire roundup of the week's more 
salient California-related appellate and constitutional law news. Thanks to all of my guests, Professor Arthur Hellman, Dan Siegel, Mark Angelucci, and Glenn Danis. Also, thanks Nick Sonnenberg for hopping on. Thanks to my production staff, principally Nick Perez. And also thanks to you for tuning in. Don't forget that one hour of CLE credit can easily be yours for having done so. Just look for a true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to talking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Thank you.